This is Tush. And I welcome you to Tushalicious Talk, an Oklahoma City podcast for titillating women, tantalizing conversation. And I thank you in advance for allowing me to be your one-stop shop advocacy connection. Hello again, this is Jackie, nickname is Tush, and you are again listening to Tushalicious Talk, a podcast in Oklahoma City. And today I have three guests. Of course, I have my reoccurring guest, Stephanie Henson, who was the vice president for the state league. And now she is a board member. A board member on the state uh, LWV OK. And I'm also a member of LWV OKC. That's right. That's right. And then I also have Ruth Roth and Trisha Harrod. So I will start with Trisha. Trisha Harrod is an active tribal member of the Muscogee Seminole Nation. And she is also Amy Warren's aunt. Um, Shout out to Amy Warren. She was our secretary at the League of Women Voters in Oklahoma County for a little while when we needed one. And I definitely thank her. Uh, How are you doing today, Miss Trisha? I'm, I'm doing great. I'm glad to be here. Tell us about some of your activism with the Muscogee Seminole Nation. Well, You know, um, they have a a language class, which they teach online. And I try to encourage younger people, the younger generation, to take these classes Mm -hmm. because there's no pressure on them to attend class every day because our language is something that we're losing. The younger generation just doesn't speak it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, if, if we're not influencing them in some kind of way, then our language will be lost. It's lost. Yeah, I've read that a lot about uh, a lot of the cultures in Africa as well. 800 or so uh, languages have just completely disappeared because no one speaks them anymore. So, yeah. Um, Ruth Roth from Avery Chapel AME Church. She is the Social Action Committee Chair there. So, Tell us a little about what you do there and uh, how you came to Oklahoma or how your family came to Oklahoma. Well, sure, I will. The Avery Chapel AME Church Social Action Committee is very, very interested in increasing the active participation of African-Americans in the political process. And that is a big challenge. I have lived in Oklahoma City all my life. My parents were here. However, I was actually born in Athens, Texas. Back in the day, uh, parents uh, or moms would sometimes go to their hometown for their child to be born. And so that's what happened with me. I was born there, but I never really lived there. So we have been in Oklahoma City uh, all of my life. I'm a product of the Oklahoma City Public Schools and... um, have uh, decided to just stay right here. Wherever you go, there are going to be hills and valleys and ups and downs and Mm -hmm. and kinds of things that make you cringe and and other things that bring you joy. And so oftentimes it's what we bring with us that allows us to experience those things in a way that we can deal with. What about you, um, Ms. Tricia? uh, How did your family come about I was so young. I spent uh, a lot of time when I was young uh, in in Morris, which is part of the reservation. And um, we came to Oklahoma City in around 1963 because uh, my mother 
was still alive. And uh, that's when I, I first remember being here. Mm-hmm. You said from Morris? Morris, Oklahoma, which is right south of Okmulgee. It's so small. I've never heard of it. We lived in the area, and I thought that was the whole town. We had our, our own little area, and we never left there. Mm-hmm. And I basically kind of grew up on the church grounds there. Mm-hmm. And it was across the road from my grandma's house. And we used to go there to the church grounds all the time. There's a field there that we'd cut through. We'd play ball there all day long. But on the campgrounds, but on the church grounds, there were camp houses. Mm-hmm. And like the prominent members of the family had a camp house. And all the women would be there during the day and they'd be cooking and you know at a certain time of the day when they got through through cooking they would take all their food and set it out on the still called the table mm-hmm. all of us that were there would stop what we were doing long enough to go to go eat and then we'd go back to whatever we was doing mm-hmm. so is it still a reservation today yes it is are reservations owned by the state of oklahoma no Reservations are owned by the tribes. They've all got their own territories. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So Oklahoma law does not abide on the reservation land? No. We have our own police force there, Mm -hmm. which is light horse. The local police authority just can't go on Mm -hmm. to native property. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And what about you, Stephanie? How did your family come to Oklahoma? My mom had, my mom's family, I think they'd all been in, this is the Durant area. Um, my, I, gosh, you know what, when my kids would ask, they'd go to school, you know, and say, what, what tell us about our background, you know, we'll tell them we're Okies, you know, <laughs> like tell them we're, and it was, uh, because I, but I do know a little bit about where all, you know, my family came from, but we were, my dad actually was in Tulsa, uh, I mean, not Tulsa, Texas, Cooper, Texas. And um, his, actually his mom, who was, so that was on his dad's side of the family. So he was born in Texas, uh, but my mama was from a little area there outside of Durant. And they were given land from, because uh, they're Choctaw, they, uh, the Choctaw Nation is in Durant. So my grandmother's family was Choctaw. And um, so their their home place, she would always kind of say our home place was given to them by the federal government after, gosh, and I, and I wish I even knew what year that was. That's in Bochito, Oklahoma. It's probably a Choctaw word that has a meaning that I don't know. Like I do feel um, sometimes really sad about my Choctaw roots because I recognize that that idea of passing, you know, it was easier to pass for white, I guess, than to be native. And I don't especially think that that's what happened, but also the idea that I don't have a connection with our stories much from my Choctaw family members, although they remained on the rolls, uh, the Dawes rolls. They remained always, you know, my mama did. So I, but I feel disconnected to a lot of the family stories. I sometimes think, um, including, and by the way, that was also true with my family stories on my mom's side. I think my grandmother came from Scotland. We were Scots Presbyterian. And uh, so I know when I finally had the opportunity to go to Scotland, it was like things kind of started clicking, but we didn't tell a lot of the stories. I feel sometimes like I would, and I, by the way, craved my family's stories and my the history of my family's stories. But at the same time, I don't, and even as my daughter is asking me, what are we? And I, I feel like I don't have a lot to 
<laughs> convey, you know what I mean? Because it was, yeah, so a little Scots Presbyterian, a little Choctaw, a little, I feel like I'm a little of this and a little of that a lot of times with my my history. But, but for me, the reason I think I liked to emphasize Oklahoma, even when my daughter asked me, was because as soon as I was born in Duran, Oklahoma, we moved and moved all over the country and uh, with my dad. And so for us, Oklahoma was home. And it was when we got to come home on the holidays for Christmas. So for me, Oklahoma did mean something, even though it was this big amalgamation of a lot of things too, you know, it was. Yeah, it's probably the same feeling that they got uh, in Morris when the food was out. Stephanie mentioned the Dawes Act. How does the Dawes Act affect the Muscogee Seminole Nation? You have to prove that you are native yes. to get to tell you know, you us have about to do that. A, a whole lot of research on that. Mm-hmm. Oh my goodness. You probably have to go back to my great great grandparents. And that's not easy to do. At all. It's not easy to do because you have to come up with birth records. But one thing is that helped a lot is in 1907 is when they done Indian land allotments and they enrolled everybody. And those are the records that you look for. The census records, because they'd done a lot of interviewing back then, will give you a whole lot of information. And that's how I found out a lot of, a lot of things. See, my parents, both my parents were delayed certificate of birth. Mm-hmm. So we had to go by church records, military records, and they kind of guessed when my dad was born. They gave him three different dates to choose from. Mm-hmm. But since he was a World War II veteran, one of the dates they gave him was December 7th. So we always celebrated his birthday on Pearl Harbor Day. You have to have, you know, the roll numbers. And you and if you're a part of the five civilized tribes, you can look, you know, through, through uh, Muskogee Nation's roll books and find... You, you know, your uh, great-grandparents, great-great-grandparents on there. It's hard to find documentation to prove the lineage. Mm-hmm. And the census records helps a lot with that. For years, I tried to, to find my grandmother, mm-hmm. who was a Seminole. It was her mother who we had had to go from to be able to, to claim Seminole. Well, I couldn't find her for years, and I got a letter from the Department of Interior, oh, I'd say maybe 15 years ago. And the reason I couldn't find her is because she wasn't registered with Seminole Nation. She was registered with Muscogee Nation. I've seen a lot where, um, especially, it's especially hard for Black people because the census of one year will say, you know, like a, um, it'll say like Indigenous Black. And then that next census 10 years later, it'll only say black on there. And the name might have changed or even a lot of times because um, slavery existed back then, it won't list the name. It'll just say black female owned by such and such. And if that person was sold and then, of course, the census is only every 10 years sold by another person. If you can't find the records of who sold this person on down to the 10 years, that's what makes it so hard for Black people to prove um, they're Indigenous uh, uh, to get their tribal uh, memberships. Have you heard that before, Ms. Ruth? Yes, and you know, as, as you were talking, I learned 
almost as an adult that my grandmother's father was Native American. Mm -hmm. I believe Cherokee, but I'm not sure. But we really never talked about it, never associated with it, never dealt with anything related to the roles, et cetera. But I do remember his name is Jeff Kleiner, but how we are connected with that really just did not integrate into our, our culture or what we did on a on Yeah, a and then there was daily, a paper bag test when the Dawes roll um, came about. So if you were the color of a paper bag, then they would allow you to get on the Dawes roll. But if you were darker than the, they, they booted you, like they didn't care if you were indigenous or not. If you were dark skinned, you were not getting on there. You're not being registered. I would like to know, like, what are two of your most noteworthy memories of your childhood in Oklahoma? I was raised down there by, by a woman that we all called grandma who wasn't even related to us at all. And she raised so many of us and everybody knew who she was. Is there like a specific tree or a river or anything that that's still there from when you were a kid that brings back a specific memory? It's still pretty empty. Is that field we used to play in. Because mm-hmm. whenever, okay, there was Grandma's house, and we used to cross the dirt road, and there was a barbed wire fence. And she would open that barbed wire fence so we could all climb through there. Then we'd hold it up for her, and she'd come mm-hmm. through. We'd come across that field, and then there's a, a the cemetery there. There's an old Indian cemetery there. Mm-hmm. Then there's the church grounds. It's still that way. That field is still empty. I could see all of us out there still playing ball, you know, just having a good time running and playing because that's what we did every day, all day long. Do you have memories of going off the reservation? Yeah. I, I remember when I came down down here, it was different for me here because um, they hadn't started busing yet. And I didn't. I didn't really understand uh, the racial separation Mm -hmm. because I was a kid, you know. Mm -hmm. Uh, My best friend was Mexican. I I had a a a a Negro friend. You know, they were best. They're my best friends. Mm -hmm. And then whenever I come down here, you know, I I had to to go to my Negro friend's house to play with them Mm -hmm. because they couldn't come to our neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And uh, I I just had a hard time understanding that. But, you know, my dad raised us that no matter what we went through or what people done, we treat everybody with respect. Mm -hmm. And I'm glad that he taught me that. There's so much hate out there. I don't need to be another person that's on that train, too. What about um, you, Ruth? What about um, how was playing and having friends of different colors? When I was a child, really didn't have that. Mm-hmm. I, I grew up in northeast Oklahoma City, mm-hmm. and we had, you know, everything that we thought we, we really needed, you know. And so walking from church to my home, I lived at northeast Second and Walnut which is right next door to Calvary Baptist Church, which is the church where we met during the sit-ins. And we would go from there and walk downtown to various restaurants to sit in. But when I was younger, we would walk down 2nd Street, which was Deep Deuce, 
to my church Mm -hmm. and just being able to stop at a place called Randolph Drugstore and look at the comic books and get ice cream cones. And, you know, that was a wonderful world for us. My my school was on the same street, Emmon Page Elementary School. And so the whole neighborhood was a sense of comfort. Going outside the neighborhood as a child, I remember getting on the city bus with my mom. We would get in the front front of the bus, drop our coins in, and then just walk to the back of the bus. I mean, it was just what you did, you know. Mm-hmm. And so my fond memories are of the, the wonderful businesses that were on the street. We had our, our first the, the Aldrich Theater, and the woman who started that was a member of my church. So all of that was Black-owned? Oh, yeah. And it was um, it was referred to as Deep Deuce until recently when it's been changed. Now it's pretty much apartments and those kinds of things. But that was uh, where our Black newspaper was, the, the Black Dispatch with uh, Roscoe uh, Dungy, who was a very, very powerful uh, person in, involved in the civil rights movement. So that had a lot of fond memories, but it also helped me just realize now that I'm thinking back that we were business owners, we uh, maintained what we needed, and there was a real sense of community mm-hmm. uh, and a sense of neighborhood that we have there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you participated in some sit-ins as a child? I did. Wow. That's amazing. It was. <laughs> so it was like a thing for all the kids at the church to participate? Oh, no, not at all. And, and actually, it was not an, a movement of the church. Mm-hmm. The Oklahoma City Sit-Ins was part of the NAACP Youth Council. It was started by a lady named Clara Looper. But during that time, and I must have been 13, 14 years old, and we met at Calvary Baptist Church. Mm-hmm. And there were a number of restaurants that did not offer food to African-Americans. And actually, it was started because Mrs. Looper wrote a play called mm-hmm. Mr. President. Mm-hmm. And she and the participants in that play were invited to Washington, D.C. to perform it. And on the way there, they were able to eat in restaurants. And her daughter, Marilyn, thought on the way back. They were not because it came the Southern route. And she thought, you know, this is really unfair. Mm -hmm. So that's really how the sit-in movement started here in Oklahoma City in uh, 1958. But it was a tremendous learning experience because we were taught about nonviolence. We were taught about equality. And we were also taught that we needed to do something to make a difference, Mm -hmm. that all people were not bad, including us. And so we learned a lot. That was my first experience in traveling. And I love to travel to this day. But going to some of the national conventions, having an opportunity to actually meet Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and have him sign my yearbook. Wow. I I had not heard you tell that part. That was at a convention in 1962 in Atlanta. Going to places when we would travel to those conventions where we would be able to go to hotels and and sit and have meals like everybody else. So coming back home to Oklahoma and not having access to that Mm -hmm. was a real burden and a challenge for us. Mm -hmm. And so as young people, we made an effort to make a difference. Mm -hmm. So was Roscoe Dungy an activist when you were a child? Yes, he was. He actually was the, I do. 
He was the editor of the Black Dispatch newspaper mm-hmm. for, for a long, long time. You mentioned busing, and I remember when uh, I, my oldest son was going to be bused when he started elementary school, and I did not want him to be bused. Can y'all explain what busing is? Yeah, busing was an entity, and you can sure chime in on it, but as I remember it, it was a situation in Oklahoma where their effort to segregate schools was to bus black children from their neighborhood to a white school. This was probably around the, what was it, Brown versus the It was after, it was quite a bit. So that that was 54, Brown versus Board was 54, and it took a while for states to find ways to... We had different different things here. I remember there really wasn't no... uh, in elementary school, yeah, there really wasn't any kids of, of, I'll say, color, you know, in in school. They were starting to do that by the time I got in junior high. So what what was school like before busing for you? It, you, it was on the reservation? No, he, it, it was here, it, here in Oklahoma City. But uh, uh, How did you get back and forth? My dad. Okay. See, my mother passed away whenever I was real little. Uh-huh. And I I stayed with my grandmother and I stayed with other relatives. And um Do you remember the name of the school? Arthur okay. Arthur Elementary. Arthur Elementary. Yeah, it was across the street from where my dad went to the school at. But I remember being mean because they used to call us names and stuff. We we used to fight. So you know? even in elementary, you still were, your dad drove you to a white school? Yeah. It was across the street. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And yeah, because, you know, my brothers and them, you know, even after we, we were grown, we used to talk about it, you know, but uh, they used to mess with us and, and it made us mean, you know, trying to defend ourselves, you know. We were just kids, kids living in a society, you know, that wasn't accepting of other races. Non-white people. Yeah. It, we was right kind of in that transition of, you know, where they're starting to, to bus and, and, and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And then they would have what they what they called uh, race riots and they used to come up and, and tell me, you know, nothing's going to happen to you because you're, you're, you know, yeah, you're not either one. I, I was kind of like neutral ground, but it it was odd to me. I, I just. Oh, it was between black and white students. Yeah. Oh, but not native students. They yeah. considered native sort of not what. Not, yeah, I see exactly what you're saying. This was in high school. The high school kids were telling you this. Yeah, it started in junior high and then off into high school. Wow. And uh, like I said, it was, it was, I was really confused because I was coming back and forth between, I'd be, you know, sometimes I'd be with my Uncle Dave or, you know, I'd be with my Aunt Haley or I'd be with my grandma or somewhere. And then, you know, I'd come back here for short periods of time that I'd be gone again. And it was confusing to me. Of why it was happening. Yeah, and I couldn't understand how come people were hating each other like that. And, and you know, one time when we were coming back from my grandma's house, we had stopped at a restaurant in some small town. 
I don't even remember because I was so small. But we got refused service at a restaurant. And uh, my dad was like, come on, we have to leave. Why? I'm hungry. and uh, But he was kind of a... We need to leave. <laughs> we need to go now. Yeah. So, yeah. and I remember that and I was little, yeah. you know, because my mom had already passed and my dad was, it was me and all my siblings and my dad, you know, so. Yeah. Well, what about, um, you were saying that your son, um, you were going to talk about your son's Oh, yeah. When and you didn't want him to be bused. Yeah. When he started uh, first grade, mm-hmm. he was going to be bused. And we live northeast Oklahoma City, and they were busing him to a school that I'd not heard of way south side. And I went, nah, I'm not having that. My parents had moved into a neighborhood that is now, it's a Wildwood, I'm sorry, Millwood neighborhood, and that was an independent school. Mm-hmm. And so I just had him stay with my mother until I found a place within a couple of months in that neighborhood so he would not be bused. But you back back to your point in reference to signs of of segregation. And I remember in, I'll just call it John A. Brown's, which was a very prominent uh, department store here. And they had, in the basement, there was a cafeteria, which was, uh, the manager was a guy named Wade. And we remember him because he was the person between us and being able to go in and get something to eat. That was one of the places where we sat in. They also had two restrooms for women one that said colored and one that said white. There wasn't one that said colored and another one said Native American and another one that said Hispanic. It was just black and white. So you were almost either or uh, as far as being segregated Mm -hmm. against. And I remember at one point later when they tried to scrape the the colored off of the door, but you could still see it. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so, and the same thing with, with water fountains. Mm-hmm. I remember uh, Stephanie telling me that about Wheeler Park as well, because I didn't know that about Wheeler Park. But, yeah, the fact that we can all go and walk through Wheeler Park together, you could not do that back then. Yeah. Um, also, I remember reading that Oklahoma was the first state to legalize uh, separate payphone booths, like black only payphone booths and white only payphone booths. Like they did not want colored spit on their phone, so I did not know that mm. about the uh, the phone booths. I didn't but it it sounds real. I didn't know about the phone booths, but I did know about Wheeler Park. Mm-hmm. You know, because the, the natives used to have a big ball tournament down there. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't have it down there no more, but uh, it had something to do with. Uh, I think it was trains. That were going through there. It was back in night around twenty three, when they done that. We used to have a huge uh, ball tournament down there, mm-hmm. and it was for years. Wow. It was a lot of fun, lovely, and it was the biggest thing. If your parents played it, you know you're you're, you're did, did your did your parents play Trisha? <laughs> yes, they did. My mom actually played. Uh, Pro ball in the Native American League. That's really cool. I just found this out. That's right. Is was that so? Was that more when you think about women being allowed to play sports? What were Native American ball teams 
more open to women. I, I think that's interesting, too, when you start thinking about women being allowed to play. So did the like native leagues play only other native leagues? Yes, that's how it is. You have to. And and they still have that tournament that they had down at Wheeler. Uh-huh. But since we kind of got booted out of there, uh, they have it out in Norman now. Uh-huh. And uh, I'm, I'm forgetting how many years it is now. But you have to, you have, the card that we worked so hard to get, you have to have that to prove, yeah, to be able to play. What I really want to know is like, what was voting like? It's very difficult. It's a mixed bag in some ways. There are some Blacks who feel that voting is somebody else's thing. Mm-hmm. And there are some of us that feel like people fought and died for us to do this, that it was illegal for Blacks to vote. There were obstacles to vote. Blacks had to prove that they were worthy to go to the polls. And getting past that and through that is a challenge. So what we try to do with our current voter registration and voter participation efforts is to help our community connect the dots. And oftentimes those dots are dollar related. Your future great granddaughters, what would you like for them to know the most about the past, um, your experience in the past? My experiences in the past, whenever growing up, we did a lot of traditional stuff. Uh I mean, uh, our base was really our church grounds. Uh, we more or less grew up on the church grounds. And, you know, we constantly were doing, you know, our traditional things. And I'd like to see that kept alive and be taught to our younger generations, like our praise and worship. He used to pick somebody from each tribe and they would sing a song, a hymn, in their native tongue. And I grew up learning these songs. And I wished, I would love to see my my kids, my great-grandkids, you know, even my nieces and nephews, learn that. We practiced a lot of our traditional stuff through through, uh, our church grounds and in, to me, that was that was everything. That, that family feeling. I'd like to see that keep going. You know, no matter what generations, race, yeah, generations. what generation it is, what race it is. Yeah. You know, keep your culture alive. Yeah. You know, practice it. Yeah, and find ways to have that that conversation. My my great grand grandson who calls me Gigi. You know, and he says, "Well, Gigi, what happened when?" You know, and to to just share that with them and. Uh, have them write some things about it. One of them writes poetry. One likes to sing. Dante plays, like my great-grandson plays football. And when you look at that, and I remember Prentice Gott, who did practice teaching when I was at Douglas, but he was one of the first black football players at OU. And so just looking even at something like sports, 
and the impact that ethnicity has on that particular thing, because many young people are turned on to sports, and it's a great way to introduce them to Mm -hmm. the work, the effort, the energy that all people have contributed in some way to that particular sport. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it was a nice way to connect with him because that's something that he could relate to. And what about you, Stephanie? What is there anything from your past that you would, um, you know, when you do have great, great grandkids, what would you want to be passed down? I hope that I can live up to the challenge of my times in the same way that those who went before me lived up to the challenge. It's all the voices of people who stand up for um, their neighbors, you know, all the people who, in in spite sometimes of all the forces that might want to prevent that from happening. I was thinking, because I've just read a book called um, Fever in the Heartland by Timothy Egan. He wrote uh, also The Worst Hard Time, which is about the Dust Bowl, but it's... um, the history of the 1920s um, clan. The clan had sprung up in the in the 1920s, and it's the history in many ways of, um, it, in spite of the fact that it had grown so powerful, the Ku Klux Klan that um, governors were clans, card carrying clans members. There were many members of the Congress of the United States that were card carrying clans members. There were, uh, and they were shooting for the presidency. You know, it was so pervasive in the 1920s. Uh, and the, the, the book was inspiring in that it showed all of the resistance to that force of white supremacy, you know, the, of the 1920s. And, uh, and it did talk about, was it Weldon Johnson? It was Mr. Johnson from the NAACP who was the writer. Yes, and he was the writer of... Uh, the the anthem lift every, lift voice, every voice. voice and yeah. sing yeah, lift every voice and sing with his brother John I yes think. and it was just I think I want to I'm up to I want to I want so when you talk about tying the past with the present and the future I want I I, I consider I, I like to consider those voices uh, voices that I want to carry with me I'm inspired by those voices the voices that resisted the forces of that were anti-democratic forces of the Ku Klux Klan. And mm-hmm. I want to live up to that challenge. And I actually hope that a hundred years from now, so that was the 1920s, that the Ku Klux Klan was rising to power. And they said that uh, D.C. Stevenson was the grand dragon of the period that mm-hmm. that said that, you know, he wanted the presidency. And he said, uh, and it wouldn't be a presidency. It would probably be a dictatorship because that's mm-hmm. he was he was looking to take out democracy. He didn't want you know, that was a backlash to uh, a, a Democrat, a more Democratic, you know, um, mm-hmm. period of time. And they and uh, giving women the right to vote. Right. In the 1920s. Black people the right that's, to vote. Yeah, that's exactly the right. right. To vote. Yeah. Like, we don't want it. We yeah. don't want that. And yeah. so there was that backlash. And my hope is that 100 years from now uh, that they, you know, that. but I think it's I think we've learned enough to know that we always have to. Democracy is something that always has to be protected when we're educated and the things that you do, Jackie, by bringing people together to tell their stories and in our book readings and in learning our histories and all the forces that would want you to not be educated about these histories. You know what I mean? We need to overcome those forces, the forces that would cause us not to be educated about it. We the people. Mm-hmm. We the people. We the people. Mm-hmm. When that is real 
really real. I think we'll all have something to be proud of. That's right. We, the people. Yep. And on that note, I am going to end <laughs> with we, the people. Thank you so much, Ruth. Thank you so much, Trisha. And thank you so much, Stephanie. Thank you always, Jackie. Thank you so much, listeners. Have a great day. Tushalicious Talk is part of the Breaking Ice, Building Bridges community podcast platform brought to you by Possibilities, Inc.